So I just noticed you put up a uh, a spaces prep for this on your Substack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm reading through it now. Yeah, so what what I wanted to do, and uh, while you're reading through it, I'll just give everybody the little pitch. So I, I essentially just wanted to put a bull case, a bear case, and uh, a base case out there um, that really hinges. I, there's I, To me, there's not much drama to, to talk about within the thermal segment, but Matt could really go uh, you know, some different ways, and that's obviously what the market is telling you right now and why the stock is becoming a bit of a battleground. So I put three different cases out there and tell you what you have to believe really about like the descent path of, of Seaborn. Uh, and then I chose, you know, three different domestic contracting rates as well. Um, you know, so that you can kind of put together a range of scenarios. Uh, and then I spit out, okay, so what's your EBITDA and what's your free cash flow and what does it mean for the stock price? So yeah, if anybody's uh, wants to kind of follow around and play around with the numbers as we're talking through the topic here, the Substack piece is, is pretty helpful just to frame out, um, uh, you know, like obviously what does the descent path look like? Because to me, that's that's everything that's driving the stock right now even though I think, you know, you're at a point where prices, the duration, uh, you know, of the Met rally has been so strong for so, so long that like, it's hard to, in my mind, it's hard to paint a path where you lose uh, if you just let, you know, this, this next kind of five quarters play out. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a good one to have open on your screen as we're talking. Um, but yeah, so, so Dyer, I appreciate you coming on. I mean, I think, you know, you, you obviously I'm a subscriber to the cold trader. And so uh, you, you very rightly uh, were anticipating kind of getting out of the way as this first kind of draw the drawdown happened on like, let's say CFR China pricing, right, which went from, you know, 600, which was just an absolutely absurd price that obviously wasn't going to stick around. But you I think you anticipated like, hey, that's not going to be good for the stocks as, as CFR China is coming down. And so, you know, in, I don't know, a three, four week period, CFR China went from 600 to 300, still an amazing price. But, you know, that that caused uh, that caused a lot of weakness across the Met call names. Obviously, Arch held up the best, but, um, uh, you know, that's that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, so here we are and we've got like some crazy cross currents now because, you know, you had the weakness in, in, in the Chinese steel market. You had this backlog of uh, Mongolian uh, inventory that was starting to be released. And then you had some Australian inventory that was cleared after like literally sitting, uh, I think, in ports for, I don't know, four or five, six quarters. So the China market looked really dire there for, uh, you know, a brief period of time. And you know, it's, it's, again, like watching this market makes your head spin. But in the last two weeks, now we've had, you know, we've had the Canadian weather, which is impacting some of tax production. Uh, now we had the we've had the flooding in Queensland, uh, and now we've got more Mongolian border issues. So now these prices at these ridiculous levels have kind of found a bottom, and that's kind of the battleground that we find ourselves in right now. So that's like, I mean, that's just some of the fact pattern for those listening in. Um, but Dyer, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, uh, you had a great trade. You sold the stock, you avoided $10, $15 drawdown. Um, so I'd love to hear your updated thoughts. Yeah, that's a, that's a great summary. Um, I, I sort of got uh, nailed on after Q3, after all the earnings announcements. And I was, I was leveraged to the, you know, to the full tilt, uh, long at calls. And I, I was ready for uh, for positive uh, earnings and, and and the positive fundamentals to really boost the stock prices on on most of these names. 
and that's not what happened. The whole thing reversed, and uh, yeah, I, I took I took a pretty deep drawdown, and um, and so I started pairing back a little bit, and and then the uh, the CFR prices started getting hammered. And I think that happened because of the uh, the inventory releases from the Australian uh, coal that that uh, they had uh, stockpiled in China. And they, they began releasing that. And, and so that really, really hit the CFR price in China. Um, and ever, you know, and then I think we, we could look towards the steel production numbers and see and see the drop off that occurred in November. And, um, and, 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 and that that sort of explains, you know, the, the weakness in the market uh, since then. So I guess, you know, looking forward, it, it's all about, OK, seasonality on steel production in China always bottoms in February, starts to ramp back up in March, April, and May. And um, the drop-off this time has been more drastic than in the past five years. And so we're really wondering at this point is, will the ramp come back as it did in the past five years, or will the ramp disappoint? And, uh, and that's really the question, I think, for 2022, is will the Chinese steel production ramp up in March, April, May, carry us through for a strong 22 or not. And uh, it looks like, uh, you know, the, the construction sector in China, the real estate issues that, that's going on right now, that's sort of giving everyone pause. So that's kind of how I'd frame it. So what do you say to the notion that, look, no matter what happens, uh, well, actually, let me bring up two different points here. First, there's kind of, you know, I think like Jacob Mueller has been saying this, like all of this, you know, this, this, this slowdown in Chinese steel production and prices are still here. You know, what does that tell you about the tightness of this market? Um, so that's kind of one point that I'd love to hear your reaction to. But then also just my point of, look, you, you've basically already had duration strong enough and long enough to make these freakish amounts of free cash flow. Uh, you know, in the next three, four quarters. So at what point do we break that relationship between, hey, the spot's coming down, you got to sell the stocks? Like, to me, you're really pushing the limit here. And I kind of think back to what happened with Avis. I went back, I, I've invested in the auto rentals in, in my past career. So I was kind of watching what happened with Avis. And I was like, well, let me go back and see what people were saying. And it like sounded basically like our arch conversation. It was, well, yeah, I mean, of course, they're making record profits right now. And of course, they're going to buy back some stock. But like, you know, use because obviously Avis makes a ton of money when used car prices are strong. And the thinking was like, oh, OK, you just can't buy the stock here because this is, you know, this is peak earnings and uh, it's peak earnings. And obviously, once used car prices start going down, you're screwed and blah, blah, blah. And these are bad businesses, all that, all that crap. Right. And then, boom, they report a quarter. Um you know, talk about a lot of the buybacks and the stock doubles in your face in like a day. I mean, it's just remarkable. But but to me, that conversation is not that different than the Arch conversation we're having here. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on both of those topics. Yeah, I guess on your first point, um, I really, you know, the CFR market pulled back and I really wonder how much how much visibility that market is, how, how, how much volume is really being traded. So we look at the CFR price and is there any volume behind that price? And I don't know if there is. And so then we can look at the Australian Coke and Coal um, indexes, and we know that there's a lot of volume behind it. And uh, it pulled back, obviously, and it, uh, it's been bouncing recently in the past uh, two, three weeks. 
And so that is a, that's a good sign. You know, you've got to ask yourself why it's bouncing. And obviously it's because of uh, uh, flooding and, uh, you know, rain in Queensland. Uh, but yes, you know, like Jacob is saying, uh, in this, in all this weakness, prices have, have remained high. And that's obviously a positive, a very constructive sign going forward. I agree. Um, on, uh, you know, but, but as far as that visibility goes in the CFR market, um, we don't really, I don't, I kind of, I question the validity of that, of that price number and wonder where it really would be. Um, I, I just don't think there's much volume being shipped from the U.S. East Coast into China, like right now or, or in mid to late November. I just don't think m many tons were transported. So I just sort of, you know, that uh, that's a question mark. Uh, and then to your second point, um, I, I'm also sort of fading the idea that Arch is going to come out and just announce huge buybacks anytime soon. And, and the reason is, and I've stated before, is just that they are so scared of, uh, of being shut out of the capital markets. You know, they've, been, they've recently gone through bankruptcy. They've come out. They don't have a lot of debt. Um, but at the same time, I just think they're going to hoard cash because uh, the capital markets are shutting them out. I've, I've uh, listened in on board meetings in the coal industry and CEOs, everyone is deathly afraid that they're going to be shut out and they're not going to be able to refinance their debt. So I think the whole industry is sort of planning on self-financing. I know it sounds drastic, but I mean, these are drastic times if you're a coal producer. And if Arch has that thought process that they're just going to self-finance, I think they'll be in a, a hoard cash um, strategy as opposed to, hey, let's boost the stock price. Let's, let's uh, give it back to investors. So that's sort of where I sit there. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, I mean, Jimmy Brock has told me directly that, you know, debt markets are open to coal producers. It's just, you know, on what terms, I think, is the, uh, is the, is the problem, right? It's like, well, if you, if, you can, if you can get access, but, you know, your, coup your coupon is some ridiculous percentage, do you even really want to do it? I think that's why more people are looking at, you know, it's self-financing. Um, it, I don't really know how, how that's going to work out. And, you know, the kind of more, the closer we get to, you know, first, first quarter earnings, like, you know, I'm starting to kind of come around to that viewpoint. Um, I made the, made the comment on another spaces. Uh, yeah. You can. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a cool Twitter call without some kids screaming in the background. That's for that's sure. Right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, my, my daughter needs some starburst. But uh, I mentioned on I mentioned on one a, a different, you know, kind of natural resource spaces a while ago. That's that's great, sweetie. <laughs> it's like it's a pattern. That's right. Future analysis. <laughs> Technical analysis. Um, so uh, I think I mentioned on another resource spaces uh, or coal spaces a while ago, like uh, I remember talking to Terry from Patriot after the last, you know, global financial crisis. And he was on this panel with Don Blankenship. I mean, that's how long ago it was. And somebody else. And um, I think it was Lucas Pipes asked him a question like, hey, well, so what what did you learn from all this? And, you know, Terry said, well, we learned to hoard cash. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now, you know, coming out of COVID, I'm just wondering if that if that sort of thought is kind of prescient in everybody's minds. And, and I think it is. I mentioned it to a couple of folks you know, not at the C-suite level, but at the, you know, more of the biz dev offices. And, and I think they, I mean, they, they kind of feel empathetic about it. So, but, you know, to be fair on the flip side, it'd be nice to see stock buybacks, but, you know, longer term health, I think is better. I'd rather see, you know, the multi-year contracts at 
$16 PRB. And I'd rather see, you know, <clears throat> you know, lock in, lock in tons this year, uh, $200 plus met coal, and then, you know, start to, you know, plant the seeds of, of forward, you know, of 2023, where, you know, the, the curve right now for 2023 on average also has a two in front of it. So, you know, whether that holds, I don't know, but I mean, one, one fifty, you know, longer term kind of feels like, it feels like not much has changed, I guess, you know, except, uh, you know, we've had another wild boom bust swing in pricing. Uh, but, uh, you know, 150, 160 is still kind of my long, long-term price. I haven't really adjusted it yet. Um, so I, wa- I want to stay on, Matt, I want to stay on this balance sheet topic and hoarding mm-hmm. cash topic, but just mm-hmm. one quick diversion. Mm-hmm. To the extent that they came out last quarter and really were able to get amazing long-term commitments for PRB, which, mm-hmm. which to me was pretty game-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any chance that could happen with their domestic MET contracting? Could they put, and could that potentially be why we didn't see 22 contracts uh, uh, on this third quarter call? Like, I, could I, they come out and tell you that they did some 23? Uh, you might see a little bit of that, but I don't think you'd see more than maybe, uh, you know, 10%. It's, it'd be for the people who are levered to, lever to that, you know, high vol A spec, you know, they're, where they're using a, a, an expanding low vol like Buchanan and they need a contract, a good contracting high vol to kind of counterbalance the pressure in the Coke oven walls. Um, so it's possible, but I think, I think it's more just kind of, well, establishing the relationship this go around, like, Hey, you know, you, you worked with us a little bit on the, during the downturn, uh, you know, and kept us above water. Um, now we're going to work with you a little bit on, you know, on the upturn. Uh, but we need to have really good pricing this year. And then, you know, for 2023, uh, uh, some kind of a compromise level where it's in the 170, you know, kind of in the 175 range. It wouldn't surprise me to see a little bit of that tonnage, but I just, the the steel business is so um, lumbering, right? Um, I, I just don't think, I don't think they really plan that far ahead. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get a better sense in the middle of the year after we've kind of had you know, I think what I think is going to be a little pullback in the economy as to how how steel is going to progress, and we'll we'll start to see how the first wave of you know infrastructure builds kind of affects the broader market. Okay, just, got uh, it. Just jumping in and, and back to the kind of balance sheet question and and where do capital returns uh, start? Um, I, I guess you know here we are, December sixteenth. Um, prices have been ridiculously good this quarter. Um, I, I think if you you look at the type of cash flow that arch can generate this quarter and then you look at their their balance sheet i think once you remove the convertible they're going to be you know uh, they're going to they should have net cash i would think if if you uh if you remove the convertible and consider it kind of already um baked in to the share price Um, and i think to a certain extent you could make an argument that it is since uh, a good chunk of the um short interest is probably associated with uh, the convertible uh, arbitrage there. So um, I, I, I think we're a lot closer to the point where you know having you know a fistful of dollars on the balance sheet is is um, is possible in the reality for Arch. So I, I guess I, I would push back on on the comment that you know okay you're, you're if folks are scared of the next crisis, well they already have a handful of dollars uh, probably on their balance sheet now. Yeah, and the, the, I wanted to follow up. So, so Dyer, my question was going to be very similar logic to, to KNL. I've got them basically net cash positive already at the end of this quarter. And then like my base case for next year has a billion one of free cash flow. 
And so I buy back seven, I use 70% of that free cash flow to buy back stock. But hypothetically, I'm still building 300 million plus of net cash onto the balance sheet, even while buying back 770 million of stock. And so I guess my question is like, you know, and particularly with PRB being kind of guaranteed free cash flow for a couple of years now, like, I guess how safe, you know, like how crazy are those conversations uh, and how, how crazy does the war chest need to be before it's sufficient? Yeah, that's a good question. Like how much cash, you know, do you hoard until it's ridiculous? And um, how soon do they get there, I guess, is basically what you're saying and, and what we should probably debate. Um, but, I, you know, I, I just think they're going to they're going to they're going to say, all right, we, we go we, we take this dividend approach. Uh, so they started with 25 cents and, they'll, you know, they'll just sort of uh, bump that up as uh, they feel more comfortable with the forecast. And um, and and that's sort of the approach I think they're going to take. And and sort of like Matt said is, you know, he's they're going to be in a hoard cash situation. Um, but, yeah, it's a great question. Uh you know, how much cash is is enough till it's till it's sort of ridiculous, and and I, I don't know the answer to that. Not not to answer Matt, that question, but to kind of go ahead, Matt. Oh no, I was, what I was going to ask is, um, I mean, do we need buybacks, or is is the free cash flow generation enough to get us to you know 120? The convexity, yeah, yeah, you easily, you could easily get, I mean, from a, just a price target basis, well into the mid 100s without buybacks. The buybacks are what add like crazy amounts of convexity. Um, like if you can buy back big chunks of your stock, like anywhere south of, let's call it 120 bucks, um, you'll add like, you know, you'll add tens and tens and 20s and 30s of dollars of, of price target um, if you're able to buy back. Uh, you know, as an example, like in, in my base case, I can pop out like a $250 price target with buybacks at 95 bucks. And if I just like stack cash on a balance sheet rather than buying back stock, that that would go down by like 80 bucks. It would be 160 instead of 250. Um, so so it's just to me, it's like you don't quote unquote need them, but it would make the story way more convex on the upside. I got you. That's uh, yeah. When uh, what I did when the stock price was going down, I bought I bought some puts when it was up up higher. But um, I had um, you know, when I was first able to to move in, I bought I bought some calls at the hundred dollar level. And as the stock price went down, instead of really, cl I just kind of rolled I rolled them down to eighty five, and I added I added as I go instead of adding to the overall stock position. I closed closed out a bunch of those uh, this morning uh, for uh, for you know. About, about a double um but uh but that's that's kind of what i was that was the the reason i kept doing that was because i just i didn't think we needed stock buybacks to get to a level where i'd i'd feel whole you know on on my side and you know it, we don't need to stop but stock buybacks if they could just sort of uh if, if their communication was better and they sort of gave us <laughs> if they gave us a plan path yeah. forward and they said you know we're going to hoard cash until we hit blank number and when we hit blank number we're going to then give it back to the shareholders and we expect this to take take place over the next you know eight quarters i think the stock would rally i think we would all be happy with that but uh, communication during uh for the for the uh, q3 
was just terrible for all the coal producers. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, I agree. Sorry, we're driving now, uh, but um, the uh, yeah, that's that's kind of symptomatic of all coal producers. I think there isn't uh, there is there isn't really one that's um, been successful at that. I mean, is there any incentive for coal producers to have good IR? You would think, but uh, yeah, it's it, it was like Peabody's call was just. I'm still, I think I'm still mad about it. <laughs> just, just, just say, just say something. Any... Sorry, I'm stopping, stopping the navigation. Um, but I, uh, it's just amazing to me still. I I wonder if there's um, dilution or anti dilution or anti-anti-dilution rights associated with the convertible debenture that, that, that could be, um, you know, leading them to, to do or to, to be hesitant to, to speak to a, a bigger, better capital return policy. I mean, you know, the dividend policy announced was a joke, uh, frankly. Um, like I, I'm not even sure if it, it did more good than damage. Um, it, <laughs> I you know. know what? Honestly, though, I have a thought on that because I, I, back from the days when I worked at a long only, like there will literally be long onlys who get in management's ears to just pay a token dividend so that like the stock doesn't screen out of certain funds. Like because some funds just won't buy your stock if you don't have a dividend. So I when I see these little token dividends, I'm always like, oh, somebody been somebody was able to bend their ear, and sometimes the bankers bend their ear in doing that as well. I think it's stupid, but you know, who am I? But but also I? the token the token dividend points to how um, how hesitant they are. You know, it points to the hoard cash uh, mindset that they have. Uh, so where where they're trying to take a box instead of like you know visibly returning value to shareholders in sort of an aggressive and table thumping manner. Right. Yeah. There, there was certainly no um, confidence uh, in, 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 you know, how the businesses are going to perform go forward, even after locking in, you know, some North of 300 million, you know, cash flow from thermal that was basically a gift. Yeah, and you you've asked that you've asked that question about covenants on the on the convertible debenture before. Um, I wish I knew the answer to that. I've tried to find out four or five times, uh, but uh, short of short of actually finding the time to read it, you know, getting a copy of it, and finding the time to read it, I'm, I'm not. I just I haven't been able to get to the bottom of that as much as I want to. I, I have I, I've uh, I've opened it up and, and 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 closed it several times, but. <laughs> Uh, I, I even asked IR for, for, well, I asked IR for, first of all, some comments around capital return and, and, um, and on the, uh, the convertible debenture clauses, whether or not that affected anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, didn't hear anything back. Um, but, you know, I, I, if there was an issue with the convertible, geez, they got enough cash and cash flow going forward to, to resolve the issue some way. You would think. I mean, but if it's if they're required to hold it on their balance sheet for a period of time, I mean, they're, they're going to have enough money to pay down debt pretty significantly. Uh, and I, I, I assume that's what they're going to try to do. And then once you, once you get on the other side of that, then, <clears throat> then the dementia doesn't matter, I suppose. Um, but, you know, when it, when it comes to like, you know, CFA, uh, uh, CFO decisions about, you know, how to how to manage your finances, I'm, I'm the wrong guy to ask about that stuff because I'm, you know, mostly mostly it costs, uh, you know, 
supply demand price analyst when it comes to that. Uh, management issues <clears throat> regarding finance, I got to defer to others. Yeah, so I mean, I'm looking at a quarterly model and, and um, last updated kind of November 30th, so maybe it's moved a few few points here and there, but um, you know, I see them cash cash positive um, if you exclude the convertible this quarter, Q4, and I see them, uh, you know, cash positive, including the convertible in Q1. So, you know, it's like, this is the, t the, the time is now or it's in the next 90 days for, for, for them to grow a pair and, uh, you know, comment on what the plan is. Um, anyway, I, I, sometimes I'm not kind. So, so I, we've got, I do want to throw it to Billy and Arda because they, they have questions as well. But I do just want to make an editorial note. Before we get too bearish on this management team, they returned $800 million to shareholders in 2018 and 2019. So I, I, we're, we're piling up on them a little bit here, but it's not as if, uh, it's not as if they don't have some muscle memory. Uh, yeah. No, I, I hear you. I'm just, at that. just frustrated about Q3 uh, call. That's all. Before we before we pivot, I would like to say, you know, if you look at Alliance, uh, Joe Kraft has probably the best communication uh, for all the coal producers going on, in my opinion. And yeah. maybe it's just because he always uh, releases earnings first and he's just the first to uh, to get on his soapbox. But uh, Joe, you know, if you look at Alliance uh, through, throughout this rally, uh, 2020, 2021, um, the stock has been pretty stable. It's sort of like, I, you know, if I could go back in time, I just would have loaded up on calls on Alliance and not even mess with any of the other companies. Um, yep, yeah, I've, I've had that same thought. Dude. And uh, it, I second the comment on Joe, too. I mean, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of talking to him a number of times. And, you know, the, the one thing I can say about him is that he, uh, you know, he's principled. He knows exactly why he thinks what he thinks. Uh, and he's a, he's a hell of a good communicator just in general. He's articulate. Um, and he appreciates the nuance of, you know, the, uh, you know, the sort of power generation, you know, dynamic that, that we have in the U.S. during the energy transition. Uh, and he, I mean, he tells that story better, better than most people. So um, I'm, I'm with you right there. And I've, I've, I've had that same thought a number of times. Like, why, why didn't I just buy calls on Alliance? Because the ILB price has been rock steady and, you know, $80, mentioned on the call, even $80 ILB is supported down to $4, $4 gas. So. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, uh, thanks for hosting this. I mean, it's uh, I've been following you guys on Twitter, so it's a lot of data, great data you guys are putting in there. So I really appreciate it. And uh, I've also been like, I'm not like, I've been uh, following the company since 2000. So <laughs> I put in there uh, first poison pill when I was a banker, like 22 years ago, like 22 years ago. So <laughs> I uh, like, I know the company for a very, very long time. Uh, but now like it's standing out like a, like a hidden jewel for me, you know? Uh, I've done, I've done modeling. Uh, I mean, I can share it with you, uh, whoever, whoever wants it uh, as well. I've done modeling till 2025 basically going down to like 140 bucks uh, in index pricing, uh, basically netting out at the mine at 100 bucks. And uh, I couldn't agree more that uh, buybacks uh, make a lot of difference. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think the company will be able to buy back the stock at $95 next year, to tell you the truth, because they'll throw out significant cash flow 
like, as you all said, like 1.2 billion in five quarters is pretty much close to given. Uh, I would say, looking at the index pricing now and index price like pricing for this quarter and pricing for next quarter, the pricing is still high. So if they do this, uh, I'm I'm modeling to tell you the truth for next year, hundred twenty dollars for buybacks. And I'm increasing the buyback pricing every year around 30% because the free cash flow yield, even with lower prices, after you do, do the buybacks, is around 40%, considering like $100, $105 net back to the mine. And at that 40%, 2025 uh, free cash flow yield, with like half of the shares being bought back, back by then gives me like $263 of a price. So <laughs> wherever you look at it, the price comes to around 250, around 250 bucks, even in a base case. Uh, even if they didn't buy back stock, I, I mean, $120 for me is like a piece of cake <laughs> at this moment. Uh, and I don't think they're going to be hoarding a lot of, like they'll hoard cash, but I don't think they need more than half a billion in net cash um, cash uh, to continue the business because I don't think they're going to have significant investments going forward. And that's why I'm I'm in the stock. You know, if they go out to a crazy acquisition or uh, do some crazy stuff, I would sell, definitely. Uh, if, it, I mean, if the free cash flow yield would come below 25% or even like maybe 30%, um, I would sell the stock. But at like the stock has to go up to 200 bucks for that to happen. So uh, I, to tell you the tr truth, I see a lot of upside. I've been holding the stock since 28 bucks. Like I have a lot of like shares, uh, but what I also do is I sell puts. Uh, for example, I sold 80 puts for February, uh, like a month ago. Uh, and that's after the earnings fall. You know, I don't think the stock will go down uh, with this Q4 pricing. Plus, uh, I'm also expecting a kind of a share by that. One thing I want to maybe ask you guys, have you seen, because I've I've looked at the, their annual reports, etc., because they went through this bankruptcy. And uh, it's good that they went through it because they got rid of a lot of debts. But there is a slight, uh, I think there are some warrants that they've given to the sub-debt uh, holders. I think around a million shares or something, or a million and a half shares. Have you guys looked into it? I mean, do you know anything about it? Have you modeled it? I think that uh, there's, a, there's a good value investors club right up on the name from a couple months ago um, where, where the guy that wrote it up did a pretty good job uh on on share count so I, I but but yes i think those are there okay great i mean but thanks for all the great like analysis you guys do really i mean uh, uh, got the arda i actually have a question for you um since it sounds like you, you spent a, a fair amount of time on on this name as well mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess two questions one is when do you think they would look to institute a um a buyback in, in your view and then mm -hmm. two have, have you um looked into the convertible debenture and whether there's any sort of um clauses that that, that may make management hesitant to, to institute any sort of capital return 
Yeah, I, uh, the first, uh, I mean, I was expecting them to do a small dividend uh, in the last quarter and they did it because it was about time. And I, I am like pretty bullish. They would announce uh, buyback in the first half of next year. I mean, if they do it uh, in the February call, it would be amazing. But I think after the first quarter, like I would doubt if they didn't announce a, a share buyback. Because one of the reasons I'm investing in this company is the management. I mean, whatever they say about capital allocation, like these guys are, uh, this management, also there's another company you guys probably know, it's CNX Resources, which is, which is console, you know, they split CIEX, uh, CEIX and CNX uh, are the tickers. Uh, I did their IPO actually in 98. So, <laughs> so I know them as well from console times. Uh, so these two managements are acting like value investors. I mean, uh, they're, they're trying to maximize shareholder value. And uh, I'm pretty sure uh, and they bought 14 million shares back since they uh, came out of bankruptcy. So uh, I would be really surprised if they didn't announce something uh, in the first first quarter called the latest, which is going to be in April. So uh, regarding, regarding the uh, convertibles, to tell you the truth, I didn't look into it because I didn't think... Uh, like there would be anything in there, uh, but I'll look at it. Uh, I'll I'll do some analysis. I'll I'll talk to some people if it's if it's not in the documents they've put in. Uh, but to tell you the truth, uh, I mean I'm also expecting them to do a deal with the convertibles hopefully soon. Uh, let's see. I mean, uh, it, yeah, it, I couldn't agree more about them doing a deal with the convertible just to get rid of it at this point. I mean, if they're going to be as cash flow positive as we all believe next year, then um, it would be nice to get rid of the convertible in 2022 instead of, I think their their first technical buyback period for that debenture is um, what, November, 2023. Mm -hmm. yeah. So maybe they pay interest up front for, for the, uh, the lost year or something. Uh, I have a question for Matt, actually. Matt, I'm, uh, like, uh, regarding the PRB side. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was really surprising uh, <laughs> they came out with those prices. I mean, you and me have been debating on Twitter. <laughs> but it was, it, it, was, it, it was a great surprise to both of us, I guess. Oh, I know and, that's been the best Twitter exchange I've had all year. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> yes, yes, it did. <laughs> So what what do you think? Do you think uh, like uh, the question is these guys will be producing around seventy million tons probably next year of PRB, uh, and in my model I'm taking it all the way down to forty million in two thousand twenty five. Uh, probably it makes sense, uh, but you never know, you know. Do you think the sixteen? Do you think the price will be higher? uh for let's say 23 or if 
or 16 will stick uh, still uh, into their uh, because today the what, what is the spot rate today i think over 25 right closer oh, to 30 i don't have it in front of me it's it's 25 30 i mean it's it's no. it's essentially infinity i mean nothing's really trans transacting on Trading. spot price mm-hmm. um you know what? What we did at Woodmac this summer, when we were trying to model forward forward coal prices, was, you know, they, they got to the point where it, you know, twenty dollars is a ridiculous number. Like maybe if you if you have rail capacity, you get a spot deal done at that. But this this becomes more just a, a relationship uh, building exercise. So, you know, if Arch can get deals done at sixteen for, um, you know, for uh, for for twenty twenty two, I think we had fourteen dollars as basically being pretty sticky going into 2023 uh, and, and 2024. Um, the, the models that we had were volatility-based. So basically, like, we had this huge spike in volatility and, the you know, the range blows out. And then we assume that that normalizes over time as people, you know, adjust those relationships, plan for the tons that they need, rebuild stockpiles over the course of next year. Um, and then moving into, uh, you know, 2023 and 2024, stockpiles for the PRB, which, you know, is a, is a more scalable basin, should be in in better shape than the than they will be in the east. Uh, so I, I think 14 is kind of the floor for 23. Uh, you know, but 15 is now the question or or a multi-year deal at you know 14, mm-hmm. 50, yeah. you know 15, 15 dollars something like that isn't isn't crazy either. I, I don't know exactly how it's going to work out. A lot of this depends on the gas price too. Mm-hmm. Um, we got uh, we got a very notable gas bull, I think, on our on our spaces here down below. I see you, Mr. Joshua. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it honestly depends on on how that uh, on, on the path in which I think the, the macro economy develops. Hey, Matt. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So I, I actually I, when I went back and read the third quarter transcript. Now, the management team referenced, of course, at that time, there was backwardation, um, of, of course, right? Because spot has gone so ballistic. But to mix, to get 22 up to $16, they basically signed a lot of contracts far above 16 They pr- probably had a two-handle on them, right? And then they sort of said, you know, they referenced the backwardation in the market. But yep. I guess if, if, if the screen keeps showing 25 or something like that, then like I don't see any reason why 16, if not higher, isn't potentially doable, right? Like to, to get up to 16 in 20 in 22 already meant that they put down a lot of volume. Like I think with a two handle. Yeah, I think that's right. But uh, the question is, what what else is available for everybody else? Uh, you know, to contract how much how much contracting was done in the first half of the year versus others. Peabody basically said that they had done a little bit. Um, you know. The, the curve that I have only goes uh, have access to only goes out about three quarters. So, you know, it's still above $20 going into Q322. Um, uh, you know, Art is really asking more about what does 2023 shape up to be like. And I, I, I think it shapes up to be lower. Uh, our longer term, uh, the longer term gas price that we were using, you know, at Woodmac basically had prices relaxing down into the, you know, mid to low $3 ranges uh, by like 2023. Um uh, basically, assuming that you know some gas supply comes on, you know we can can get it to market. Coal stockpiles normalize, so the relationship between coal and, and gas power switching renormalizes. Like all those things basically happen during the shoulder season of 22. Um, but uh, you know if that happens, then I, I see kind of 14, 14, 1450 is sort of the floor. But but again, you know it all comes down to relationships. 
and uh, and in need uh, at, the, at the power generation uh, units. Uh, you know, it, if you go on if you go on the, the terminal and look at just subbituminous stockpiled, uh, you know, relative to history versus uh, bituminous stockpiles, subbituminous is in much better shape. Um, and in the PRB, you know, being as scalable as it is, like those those plants are going to be able to rebuild those stockpiles a lot easier over time. So so I do think PRB normalizes. Uh, you know, the, the question then becomes like, what is the gas price, and what what and what gas price does that coal compete against? Um, I, you know, again, I I don't know the answer to that. There are a lot of different paths that, that gas can take depending on how things work out. But uh, you know, fourteen you know fourteen dollars for twenty twenty three, I feel pretty confident it's going to be above that. The the other uh, consideration there, I don't know if Matt, you guys took this in, into in, in, into your thought process, but. Uh, you have additional retirements coming on in 22 and 23. Yep. And, uh, and typically the PRB takes the brunt of the retirements yep. just because they uh, have so much market share. So, um, j Just to add on a, kind of another lens to this, um, when you look at the, the, the full year for, for, um, for Arch, they do provide commentary about what they were long-term contracted um, in 2022 or 2020. Um, so at, at December 31st, 2020, they had 91 million tons contracted. So let's say, you know, 50 of that is, is for 2021. So, so really, they were entering, you know, contract book-wise 2022 and, and later years with a, with a pretty sparse um, uh, book. So, uh, I mean, a couple of reasons for that. When you think you're going to shut down all your, 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 your thermal mines or, or sell them or get rid of them, you, you know, you start to you know, maybe not prioritize that. So um, I actually think that, you know, Arch was extremely well positioned. I mean, if you think about that negotiation, even if it was on friendly terms with your relationships, it's like, hey, six months ago, we were shutting it down. And, um, you know, n now we'd stay open, but you got to give me a reason. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, yeah, you, you would assume those negotiations would... Uh... That's how they got that sixteen dollars price with those twenty dollars layered in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, and uh, that's that's a good that's that's the main reason why uh, you know nobody should be playing in the uh, the Peabody space right now because uh, <laughs> uh, this, this is a, it, it's a big differentiator between yeah. Arch and Peabody just because Arch was so set up for this. I don't you know whether it was luck or not, but yeah, for sure. And I'll, I'll tag you, Matt. Oh yeah, go ahead, Arda. What's up? Well, uh, uh, just a follow-up, uh, not a follow-up, but uh, on PRB. Do you think there is any chance they sell it? Are there any buyers out there? Because that's what they tried to do uh, last year. Do you think they would sell it? And oh. do you think there's any buyer who would pay something? I mean, like something, I mean, something value. <laughs> right. I mean, when we were on, you know, Jonesy Bud's thread uh, back in, what was that, June or July, when I had like 70 <laughs> yeah. followers. And I was like, oh, yeah. there's not a buyer. And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> Cosgrove comes in and said, I don't know, you know, a, a little little optionality on PRB in the future as an export play might not be so bad. Um, uh, I, I still, I haven't heard of anybody who's really interested in, in doing, especially at these prices. Um, and, but I mean, would they sell it? Of course. I mean, I mean the asset retirement obligations alone, uh, you're just getting getting that whole thing off the books and becoming a pure play med company with, you know, 20 years of of, of run of runway. Um, I mean, I'd I'd want to do that for sure. So, uh, you know, the question, 
I mean, who's who's out there that's willing to take take a chance on that? Glencore? I mean, that's that's yeah. the only one that kind of comes to my mind. It's like, you know, has the money and the capital to do it and just, you know, thumb their nose at whoever, you know, scoffs at them. Yeah. And another, another, on another topic, uh, West L, mm -hmm. what do you guys think about it? Like, what is, uh, uh, like, what is the pricing like now? I mean, how much, for example, I'm, I'm not putting, like, I'm not putting a lot of margin from West L. No. I should, but I'm not putting uh, anything just to be conservative. Oh, you know? Yeah. Why? Because they've got two million, they basically have, yeah. you know, two million tons are going domestic, but two million are going to enter seaborne. So that's what I've struggled with that as well, Arda. But but why would they not make a good margin on the seaborne piece? And they referenced on the last call a lot of that already being contracted for 22, yeah. which I would think meant that they caught a, a attack of when the seaborne thermal prices were were off the charts. Yeah. So, and that, yeah, I. I since I didn't know anything like about because I don't know the details about pricing, etc. Mm -hmm. I knew I I know there's a margin there, mm -hmm. but just to be conservative in my model, I just put in PRB. Uh, but I oh. I left West Elk as an upside, you know, I and I I know the prices have been really high on the <laughs> on the export side, yep. but I don't know what they sell it for today, you know? I mean, yeah. do you guys have any idea? I'm, I'm yeah, I got a few thoughts, but I'll give Matt the floor first. Yeah, I'm driving or otherwise I could I could just look it up uh, or otherwise make a couple of phone calls. Um, I, I'll uh, I'll post a tweet about it sometime later today. I'm, I'm headed into, into okay. Baltimore to have, have drinks with the, uh, with an issuer friend of mine. Otherwise, otherwise I'd say it right now. Um, they're the highest they've ever been still. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I think, uh, I can't remember what the analog, what the net back was for, you know, export pricing, but it was, it was equally good. I mean, you know, 2022 is going to be an anomalous year for West Elk going forward. I just kind of think of it as a normal Western bid operation, you know, that'll have, you know, prices in the, you know, twenties you know, or something like that. But, you know, this, this year's, this year's special. I can't remember what the price was last time I looked at, um, you know, uh, Utah, uh, you know, Utah coal or whatever, but um, uh, it was, I don't know, 50 bucks, 60. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's enormous. It's, it's cartoonish. I mean, <laughs> at, at this point, so they're just, you know, they're going to take this windfall. And I, I haven't modeled any kind of real upside for West Elk going forward. I just assume it goes back to kind of a normal, like, you know, three, $3 a ton, you know, per unit, of, uh, you know, per unit of margin over time, because I, I don't know, I don't know what that market's going to do. And so, so strange. I mean, the one thing that does occur to me, you know, uh, Dyer was talking about uh, coal plant retirement. So that's that's bullish for gas. Um, the, the more coal plants get retired, the more gas we have to burn to offset, um, you know, to offset the difference. So, um, you know, the higher the more gas we burn, <clears throat> basically, the, the, the better off coal prices are. There is that kind of gap in the in the in the medium term where coal prices fall because, you know, now supply and demand are, are offset. But if, if we know those are going to happen and producers are doing a much better job about forward contracting, um, I, I don't think we'll see the same fluctuation in this next cycle that we saw in this one. I think it'll be a smaller kind of mini, mini cycle. So for what that's Yeah. So, so for what it's worth, I, I have done a deep dive on, on West Elk. Um, and oh, back to, to 2018, which was kind of the last strong period for, for Newcastle. And, um, you know, in that year, 2018, they were realizing something like 35% Newcastle 
prices. Um, I bring that up because I think it was the third quarter and, and Tweb, maybe you recall better, but um, that management talked about, you know, receiving closer to, to, to Newcastle prices for that, um, that product. Um, so, you know, West Elk was, you know, 2018 and 2019, they're producing 2 million tons a, a, a quarter. So 8 million tons a year. So there, there's a lot of, um, a lot of potential optionality on, on, on West Elk if Newcastle prices stay high. And, you know, uh, I'm seeing a lot higher margins um, for, for West Elk than, than, you know, others maybe. I think I'm, I'm seeing like, I don't know, for full year 2022, I'm seeing 17 bucks margin on, on 4 million tons. Um, could they could they double that production too? That's another question mark in my mind. Like, don't know. They've done it before. So, uh, by the way, I just I just uh, I'm at a stoplight and I pulled up uh, pulled up coal prices here. Utah eleven sevens right around seventy bucks. It's pulled back a little bit. Colorado eleven seven is right around fifty seven fifty eight. I'm eyeballing it on a chart. So not not exact, but that's ballpark. Is that at the mine? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, okay. Enormous. Enormous. <laughs> yeah. So my, my 22 full year average was, you know, 45. And, um, you know, again, uh, they were spinning that mine down um, into 21. So, you know, how, ma- how much would they have contracted in, in 2022? In my mind, probably, you know, zero or very little. Um, so could they have captured that, that lift in, in pricing that, that Matt has just spoken about. Yeah, and they've also referenced back over history. They've basically referenced like, yeah, we'll pop in and out of Newcastle when it suits us financially. You know what I mean? So like uh, to me, and they've even, they used to put this in old investor decks, like here's the level where we'll, where we'll start using, you know, where we'll start shipping and doing seaborne versus domestic. So to me, it's like something they actually constantly evaluate. I don't think it would be the craziest thing that they went hog wild when prices got crazy. But yeah, k I'm very close to you. I was thinking like 50, 50 per ton of sales and 30 of cost. So I was at 20 of margin in my model. Yeah, so 28 of cost because of uh, Matt's comments about how efficient they are per employee. Yeah, oh, okay. productivity at that mine is, is is still pretty good, which is, which is amazing. But um, they, they really, during the pandemic, they kind of, uh, you know, kind of – geared down to a skeleton crew and then as they've been ramping up productivity numbers if i recall correctly look like they were getting better yeah and, and so if, if if the back end of the curve for for um newcastle continues to you know strengthen or hold up um you know do they have the potential to to, to go from you know one million tons a quarter to two million i don't have an answer for that i don't think we've asked management but that's what the mine used to do mm-hmm uh, I mean, it's it's uh, still a long haul, right? Or is it not? I can't even remember. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, I mean, if it's a long haul, it can do it can do four, you know, four and a half, depending on seam height. I haven't looked up seam height in a long time, so I mean, the, the answer is yeah, maybe if there's if there's appetite for it and they have the the personnel. I mean, keep in mind labor labor's tight, so. Uh, you know, trying to trying to find and finding you know quality labor is real tight. Uh, you know, you might be able to find a couple couple red hats here and there, but you know, putting on a putting on an experienced miner, uh, you know, out there, 
uh, I think that's going to be pretty tough. Yeah, so it's, it's a big investment too when you uh, when you hire new guys. You know, they're they're green. It takes six six months before they're worth a damn anyway. Yeah. So it is a big investment. So, you know, they, they'd have to see a lot of runway for that. Yeah, it, I, I think it's uh, long wall and continuous minor. So yeah, uh, at least that's what that says online. I mean, that makes sense. Well, they got to they got to face up stuff. So, uh, but yeah, it's you know for for those operations. I mean, long walls you can take. It's the it's the continuous miners that really require, you know, in my opinion, really skilled guys who understand the mine, who understand the deposit, who know, you know, how to operate it and, and feel it around. And in and, uh, and that's that's just not something, you know, you can train somebody to do for, you know, in in six months, you know, now managing, you know, managing a long wall, which is mostly, you know, automated and making sure things are things are going well. Uh, it's a little bit more doable. Um, but um yeah, con- continuous mining, you know, at the operator level is is really an art, and I never never really appreciated that until I until I started going underground. It's just um, uh, something else. Those guys do really good work. Hey Matt, how how many of these uh, experienced miners we're talking about are, are is the industry losing with the, with the boom bust patterns that have been going on? Are are the coal companies holding on to the more experienced guys and they and they let the inexperienced go, or, or how how do I think about that? Well, around uh, around the time that I that I left Woodmac, uh, which was 2015, um, the, you know the coal prices were in the process of going through that first um, that first collapse, and you know we were all anticipating the average age of miners in West Virginia at that time was like 56, 57, so we were all kind of anticipating the great shift change happening over the next you know three to four years anyway, uh, if just from a health perspective, right? And, you know, the, the first wave of, of, you know, bankruptcies and stuff like that in the, you know, 2016, you know, pullback time frame, that kind of hastened that. So as I understand it, and I haven't, I've only had qualitative discussions with, with management and with, with other folks in the industry, it's younger, how much younger it got, I don't know. But there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of my friends from like high school who would have been in their, you know, uh, you know, mid thirties, early forties that were, um, uh, that were kind of coming back on uh, as, as the industry ramped up then. So if, if I had to guess now, the industry's probably, <coughs> average age of miners probably in their early to mid 40s. So they've, they've gotten a lot younger. Um, now, the, the older guys are still going to be the ones that are more experienced because they've, you know, they've been doing it since their 20s. But the ability to, <coughs> pardon me, the ability to, I mean, recruit new talent. I mean, we've just, you know, we've torched labor so often you know in this industry that there's just not that much appetite for it anymore you know and, you know I, I grew up in fairmont west virginia like all those all those long wall mines that murray owns now like they're, they're they're operating on pretty minimal staffs we know what's going to happen to those power plants over time it's just it's harder it gets harder and harder to recruit um you know people see what you know their father's out of work and you just you don't want to do that you don't want to have that kind of volatility um unless you just unless you just love it uh so but the you know, that's, it's not, it's not the easiest, um, not the easiest industry to hire in. And, uh, weirdly rail is, is kind of, uh, it's kind of undergoing the same transitions. I talked to a friend of mine who worked at CSX not too long ago. And, uh, and he said that they're having, they're having similar problems. We'll say, and I made, I made a couple of comments earlier that, uh, I remember UNP right before, um, right before the pandemic, almost bragging on their earnings call about, you know, laying off 20% of their workforce. 
And I was like, I, you know, it's, I mean, it's great for shareholders, but it's terrible for people. And now we're, now we're, now we're in the stage where we need them. And well, you know, you see, you see what's happening with, uh, with coal delivery. So, you know, moral of the story is treat, treat your people well, um, you know, and, uh, you know, try to, try to be a pretty responsible operator and, you know, do what you can going forward. Cause you never know when that karma is going to come back to, uh, to haunt you. Uh, but sorry, that was a bit of a soapbox. Didn't mean to go there. No, that, that's great. And, and one more comment and then I'll get off here. But um, OK, so do you, would you say companies now are maybe holding on to their experienced miners that they've trained even through a down cycle going forward? Is that something they're going to do because they want to retain that labor or is it going to continue to be, you know, cut them when times get tough? Uh, n- n- no, no, they're going they're going to hold on to them. Because you have you have to when 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 times get tough you have to be able to operate efficiently and to operate efficiently you need your best guys, so you know you you wind up cutting cutting the younger you, you have to optimize right so there's a you need the the guys who are really well experienced to know where you know know where uh, you know all the pitfalls of of operating in a mine are and then and then you need a few young guys to kind of balance out the the balance sheet so you know a lot of times it winds up being folks who are kind of in the middle of the curve. Um, uh, but uh, but again, you know, every every cycle is a little bit different, and it and it depends. So, uh, you know, that's all I can really do are make qualitative statements about that. But I know, I mean, I've heard uh, uh, console management talk about how important you know their their best guys are, and uh, you know, I've heard Dan Horn talk about that too at Alpha. Uh, you know, the the guys who make the mines go, you don't want to lose those guys. You want to take care of. Them. Thanks, Matt. Yep, no problem. Hey, so switching um, the the, um, the discussion. Uh, direction a bit here um how how does the 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 energy crisis that's in you know full full tilt in in europe um how does that affect steel and 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 met coal i'm specifically thinking of um you know i can't imagine trying to run an electric arc furnace right now (laughs) in in europe but um i'm curious to hear people's thoughts on that and uh, I don't know where Cosgrove went, but he would have been the ideal guy to probably comment too. Um, I, ca- I can't remember exactly what. Uh, I mean, electricity is obviously a bigger cost component for um, uh, for the EAFs. I want to say it's about twenty um, percent, maybe cost or something like that. So if that doubles, uh, you know, or triples, then you know, obviously that has a material effect. But but really, at both. Uh, you know, at both, uh, you know, blast furnaces and at electric arc furnaces, the, the, the money's all in the iron units. So if the iron units are getting cheaper and your power is getting more expensive, but your steel price is still pretty good, it's it's just a wash. Thanks, Matt. No problem. Anyone else have a take on that? Just curious. If I if I remember to, I'll try to pull up like an old um, uh, an old cost model or something, and just kind of mock up a you know generic European arc furnace later on here today, and kind of look at show generic cost by component or something like that to, to give you a feel for it and flex them flex them a couple of ways. It, it's a pretty easy chart to pull up. I just you know hard to do in the car. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that, especially if you could flex it to like I don't know. Uh, <laughs> You know, north of 100 for sure. You know, uh, there's a question of you should run it at 500, but you know, let's start at 100 <laughs> a megawatt. 
Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll I'll send you a note here when I when I have some free time and uh, have a head scratch on on what what something instructive would look like. Uh, Matt, uh, on on a similar, I'm on the same topic actually. Uh, when do you think, like Matt, call starts fading away? You know, uh, like uh, in what time frame? Like ten uh, years? Like, do you have any? opinion uh you mean like when when are we transitioning to you know yeah, transitioning to something else eafs green steel know, hydrogen yeah um, yeah when uh so i had i had a few conversations about that um when i was at woodmac this summer with uh, my, my friend cicero who, who actually replaced me uh when i left um you know i think we're I think everybody is skeptical about the speed at which it can be done. Uh, not that it can be done over time. I think over time it probably could, but, um, you know, it's going to be at least a decade, I think, before you see, you know, meaningful movement on it, maybe outside of Europe. I, th I think Europe is kind of, I mean, you, you could probably tell, tell me better than, than, than I can tell you on that note, uh, how hell bent Europe is on, on getting that done here uh, in the near term. Uh, but, you know, are we going to see it in the U S you know, tomorrow or anytime soon. I, I don't think so. I think it's going to be at least a decade before you start to see uh, a decline over here. Um, you know, a, de uh, a decline in Brazil, uh, for instance. Um, so right now, to me, I think it's it's mostly just a European story. And and they will, I don't know, if, if they set a really good example and people see that uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, cost benefits and, you know, environmental benefits and, you know, the, Then, then, then it might catch on, but I'm just I'm still skeptical that it's going to happen over the course of 20 years, and then we're not going to see any medical again. I think it's going to be a much longer transition than, than that. Yeah, I mean it's it's playing out in North America too. I would say. Um, yeah, not not at scale yet though. To, to add add two cents to that, um, if you look at kind of the um, the cost curves for for hydrogen. Um, You know, one of the largest inputs to hydrogen is, is you know, power price. So, you know, at $80 megawatt um, hour, you're generating hydrogen at something like $60 an MMBTU. So, um, you know, I guess uh, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm fading the uh, hydrogen idea for steel at least. But, um, you know, the, the capital you'll have to spend in order to build EAFs uh, across the globe is enormous. So, I mean, that's still the, that's still the constraint, you know, and we make, we make uh, what, 50% of the steel in China and they're basically 75% uh, basic oxygen furnace. So uh, Medcoal, yeah, it has, it has a 20 year runway at least. Yeah. Europe needs to, you know, get its house in order as far as power before they even start thinking about more, um, you know, green, green ideas here. And I think that they're going to really struggle with that the next year or two. But so the, the, last, like, no. the last, hold on real quick. The, uh, the last uh, conference I was at, uh, the Metco, Metco conference in Pittsburgh, that, I mean, that's all they talked about was carbon and uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, so uh, the steel industry is on, is on the carbon dioxide. They are, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. They're going to do what they can to reduce carbon dioxide. And, Um, you know, switching to EAF is one of the ways to do it. And it was, it was pretty surprising. So, 
I will yeah, that, with that. And it, and it makes great sense for you, <clears throat> pardon me, for U.S. Steel to do that, right? I mean, they're they're basically moving to a cost model where uh, I mean they're they're not going to have those huge swings like they used to have. EBITDA is going to be way more, uh, you know, way more predictable and stable and and all that sort of stuff. Um, so you know, people are going to be incentivized to do it. It just it takes a long time and it's capital intensive and you know it's it's in an industry that's you know even even though it's getting greener, it's still not perceived as much as such. So so we'll see. So uh, what do you guys see as like EAFs is one threat for me. Another threat is like prices going down, of course. But once the prices start going down, uh, I mean, we are at the very bottom of the cost curve. So uh, when prices go down, supply will be cut and we'll get ready for the next cycle. You know, So I, I cannot think of like... Uh, a uh, very bare case scenario, you know, if you're a long t- long-term shareholder. I mean, am I wrong? Uh, am I missing something? I, I don't think so. I think that's I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Uh, you know, I, I'll I'll be the bear here and just say, um, we you know the the drop off in Chinese steel production uh, this winter has been drastic. Uh, like as I said it earlier in the call, you know, and. We don't know what the ramp is going to look like because, uh, you know, there's question marks around the um, the real estate sector, the construction sector in China. And uh, if that ramp up, that steel ramp up in 2022 doesn't materialize, uh, I think I think we have further to fall in spot net prices. So that's that's the bear case, in my opinion. Yeah, but then again, if you're in it for long term, uh, if the prices go down, the supply will be cut. And then the prices will have to go up again in the next next cycle. Well, I, I mean, the uh, the problem is that the risk, the demand risk I'm speaking of, comes at the same time that we have uh, incremental supply going to hit the market in 22. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, if China doesn't materialize, then uh, prices should, you know, have a far have far to go. I mean, Cosgrove's back on now. Maybe he could speak to that, but. Um, that's the risk. We have we have additional supply and we have uh, less demand in 22. Yeah, I mean, just one way to put some numbers to it, Arda, I took my bear case um, and said, then on top of the bear case, what would you have to believe to get the stock to its current value? Um, and I needed to basically have my bear case play out for 22 which, you know, I took I took domestic contracting, I think, into the 140s, and I took Seaborn down to like 110 in, in over the next four quarters. And then I was still spitting out 2.7 times free cash flow, yeah. uh, normalized free cash flow. Uh, you know, so th- at that point, you'd basically have to say the market is predicting not only this drastic decline right away, but also that you'll have a couple years of you know rather than doing i don't know 35 to 45 dollar what i believe are normalized met margins maybe you do a couple years of of i don't know 10 20 bucks and so you've got a couple years of pain and the market is like well screw it i'm gonna put a three multiple on that that's like literally what i had to do to get to the current stock price and plus i think you have a 65 dollar cost right yeah yeah with I put $65 cost in. Yeah, because if if the prices go down, I don't think we'll see the $65 cost 
it'll probably go down back down to like higher 50s with Lear South coming online like around 50 bucks. Yeah, that's a fair point. It, it was a little tricky the way they talked about it on the call. I mean, obviously, they've got the benefit of, of owning, not leasing, right? And so there's no real royalty issues. Um, but they did talk about a little bit of inflation. I took the number to 65 just to be conservative. But yeah. to your point, Lear South should be mixing in uh, with a five handle. At least that's what they said last year. All right, guys. Hey, I got to my uh, my little get together, but so I got to drop off. But um, if anybody has any other questions or whatever, feel feel free to DM me uh, or, or or just reach out. Um, happy to happy to help. Uh, uh, you know, with anything else here on. And uh, and Tim, thanks for hosting this. It's a pleasure as always, buddy. Yeah. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for being here. I appreciate no it. No problem. See you guys. Bye. Bye, Matt. Cheers, Matt. So I'm not sure if we've beat a dead horse at this point, but I'll open it up to questions for uh, um, for anybody else. If you wanna, if you wanna go ahead and request, I'd request the uh, koala to speak. <laughs> the koala makes an interesting point, which is, you know, what what do you have to believe? What the the market is skeptical that 170 to 180 is a long term price. And maybe the free cash flow is not as amazing um, at kind of like the 150 index. Um, and, and, and so part of why Arch is hanging out here is that disbelief that we'll ever see 170 to 180 as the long term. Yeah. And I, I think with I think it's I'm, I'm sort of in that camp with the uh, you know, looking across. I, I make budgets for the company I work for and. Uh, and I, I'm fighting against everyone who's bullish. And um, I mean, the the, uh, the 2024 calendar number is 187 right now. You know, that's that, it all depends on that Chinese demand. Uh, does it materialize or not? And if it doesn't, uh, you know, that lo- that 187 long term for the Ford curve is way too high. Uh, so, I mean, I agree. That is the risk. Um, guys, in terms of the um, the natural gas, you know, I guess we can kind of call it a global shortage. We're not quite as bad off over here. And, you know, quite frankly, it, it's not really, you know, my sandbox. But, you know, there's going to be obviously some investment that goes into LNG that closes some of these gaps that are going on. And it probably, though, is is far too late to alleviate the European gas problem that's going on there. So, but longer term, do we maybe see a little bit higher coal prices because of the gas shortage, let's just say globally? Yeah, if you look at API 2 coal futures, you know, they they, they rallied hard. They went into, you know, ridiculous levels. And they've since bottomed, pulled back, and, and, you know, I think put in a good base. And, um, and they're rallying again. And so I, I think you're, you're seeing structurally higher seaborne thermal prices. Uh, you can see that with Newcastle as well. I, um, if you look back over the last few cycles, um, you'd be very happy with uh, prices today. And so I, I think that's the definition of a structural price change. And I, and I think it's 
I think we're seeing it. Um, so, you know, the thermal producers with exposure to, uh, to the seaborne market are going to do well. They have a lot of runway. That's, that's kind of what was in my head. Thanks. Thanks for that, Dyer. Hi, could I uh, chip in with a couple of questions? All right, right. right. So switching, switching gears if we can back to the sort of opening discussion about what the management wants to get out of life here. Um, I would add that the, the 2016 warrants, they strike at 57, and there's 2 million of them out, and they have anti-dilution clauses. So that's something that's got to be taken care of. Um, it looks fairly likely this firm will do let's call it five, six hundred million US dollars free cash flow next year after everything, right? Maybe pre-ERO, which they want to get rid of. Um, has anyone looked at the sort of management incentive plans and the KPIs? Because I see that uh, they had 2.1 million shares available under the uh, SBC plan. And they looked to have about 700,000 RSUs out with a strike of about 65 bucks. So these are quite large sums of money. Um, I was just wondering what the sense is on, on the management compensation and their general interaction with the share price. You know, do they just want to turn this into a, you know, a company paying out you know, $4 a share dividend after 2023 in perpetuity, which is debt-free? Because um, you know, there's a pretty chunky, pretty chunky uh, stock awards. You know, 2.1 million at you know, 90 bucks a share. That's a lot of money. And I don't know how widely it's being distributed. But... Um, you know, when you guys, and if anyone here has access to the CEO, CFO, and, and, and looks at the wide of their eyes, what is their game plan here? Hey, hey, Billy, just real quick. Um, you seem to be uh, on speaker from quite a ways away, and I was really having to, to struggle to hear what you're saying. You know, I don't know if anybody else was in that in that shoe, but if you could, maybe just a little bit louder, and that'll help me decipher things. Thank you. I got most of it, so I can just repeat it real quick. But what Billy's essentially asking is, like, has anybody done a deep dive on the proxy statements, how management is compensated, um, uh, you know, how, how much they care about the stock price, that sort of thing. And, and I'll be honest, I, I, I haven't done a ton of work there, so I will defer to anybody else. I haven't either, but yeah, it's a great question. Uh, everyone's expecting these big buybacks, and we're not even sure if that's uh, really in their game plan or if they're incentivized to do so, right? Well, I think they flagged well, pretty they clearly in the Q3 call that you know the, the debt comes first, the ARO comes second, and then what happens thereafter? They're just going to wait and see where things are come you know come Q3 numbers next year, something like that. Um, but you know the, the the SBC plan is pretty big, you know, over two million shares. You know, they're deep, the RSUs are deeply in the money. Um, so, you know, these guys are quite incentivized to do something with the share price. They don't want to see it go back and languish at 75 or 60 bucks in perpetuity. And they know full well that, you know, these good times, you know, may well not last. Yeah, actually, Billy, that's a, that's a great, uh, uh, great analysis. I mean... I really think they're going to start the buybacks first half of next year. Hopefully, they'll announce it uh, in the fourth quarter earnings. Like they'll start slow, but uh, as Tim said, I mean it's it's a huge difference whether they buy back the shares at eighty-five or hundred or even hundred ten twenty next year versus paying dividends. 
I mean, if they buy back the shares, uh, like really, we're looking at a stock uh, of 250 bucks in three, four years, which is still yielding like 40%, 40% in free cash flow yields with like uh, hundreds, as I said, 140 to 150 to index pricing, which is 100 to $110 at the mine. So uh, actually, that, that's a great point. I mean, the guys probably... <laughs> are incentivized to buy back shares rather than uh, pay back huge dividends, one-time dividends. Yeah, right. been, I don't find IR particularly communicative in writing, and I, don't, I can't get FaceTime anymore with, these, with, you know, with the C-suite of these companies. So I'm a bit in the dark here. Um, but this is obviously crucial. I mean, $150 per share. These guys will all be sellers, right? They won't, won't want to be living in Missouri the rest of their lives. <laughs> but, um, you know, there is a window of opportunity here to do something with capital structure. You know, the whole industry wants to be equity financed and completely ring-fenced from, from you know, the broader capital markets and the whole ESG thing. Um, but, you know, they're, they're going to have to start communicating this more clearly, which I'm sure they'll do once, once the Q1's out of the way next year. But you know they have they have quite a lot they have a they have a reasonable amount of skin in the game, so it'll be interesting to see what what what, what they start thinking. Yeah. Again, I come back to what they did in 2018 and 2019. The last time times were good, they repurchased million dollars of stock. Like I, I mean, sometimes history is the best predictor of the future. Um. Do any of you guys see? Uh any of these coal companies saving that cash and then deploying it into a new industry to reinvent themselves. I think Ramico are talking about it, aren't they? <laughs> Hal Halidor said they were going to do uh, uh, a big solar installation. Yeah, Halidor is planning a pivot, but uh, I don't think we should really spend much time on them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, we'll bring Joe Kraft back up at Alliance. He's, uh, you know, he's diversifying with his with his cash flow. And, um, you know, that's probably smart. Didn't they comment in previous calls that, you know, um, if they ever like they would just focus on the mines they have and, and just, you know, spit out cash? I, I recall reading that in, in one of the quarterly transcripts. Um, maybe it was second quarter or third quarter where, where they said, you know, hey, we'd be totally fine with just sitting on our hands and running the mines we have and, and just spitting out cash. So um, from what I recall, I, I don't think they're thinking at all about that. But, um, you know, I, I haven't read the transcripts uh, recently, so, so I'd have to go back through that. Yeah, that's the sense I get. Um... The industry is, has, you know, it's been hit by the cycle so many times that um, current management for most of these companies are, uh, they're not in the game of empire building. I think, I think they, they've all got it out of them and they're done doing it. Uh, maybe with the exception of Ramico, I don't, I'm not sure I really trust Ramico's management, but as far as Alpha and Arch go, I think they're done empire building and uh, yeah, I think they're happy just to run what they have and um, cash checks. You know, here's another kind of uh, thought, um, especially given the recent um, FOMAC meeting. Um, you know, we're talking about coal not having any kind of debt-related um, financing anymore. Like, the whole industry is moving to no debt, 
and we'll probably get there in the next, you know, 12 months. Um, I mean, Arch is going to be one of the few to get there quicker. Um, but if, if, if you're going to enter an environment where interest rates are going up and, you know, we're talking about coal companies that are, um, you know, not debt financed, not, uh, you know, their free cash flow yields are already ridiculous. So, you know, does that become a, an ideal asset in, in this environment? Um, you know, thinking about that a lot more, and I'd be curious to hear what others had to, to say about that. Come on, Andrew. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, uh, I didn't really catch the last end of that question. Yeah, I just, I'm just wondering, you know, um, in, a, in a high interest rate environment, how well does coal do? Yeah, that? look, like, uh, there, I'll just tell you, like, feedback that I've gotten, the, the amount of tourists slash generalists that are specifically interested in Arch, um, just because it's it, it's it's synonymous to like what's happening in every set. I mean, in most, you know, metals and mining subsectors um, is that th there's a general flight to quality. Like look at Nucor. Nucor's, you know, outperformed. You still that Amex and U.S. Steel, like U.S. Steel, we could do, a you know, another call on because, I mean, that's that's another super deep in the money call. Um, but but yeah, like. People are interested and people can do math. Um, I mean, just taking like, you know, super basic. I mean, I think Arch Bearcase can do 20, 25 bucks in free cash a year. So, I mean, that's and that's pretty Bearcase. I mean, that's, you know, about 450 million in EBITDA. Um, well, I'm sorry, free cash. Um, so is there is there going to be demand for I mean, I would think you would probably have to be in like like a meaningfully higher terminal rate environment for people to really kind of sit there and be like, Oh yeah. Like, let me throw on some coal exposure as like a, as a hedge. I think people are starting to do the math because the valuations have gotten so stupid. I mean, that, that word has been getting thrown around a lot too. And coal in steel, like, pe like people are, are, are like looking at valuations in us steel, for example, which act, you know, which has meaningful terminal value. And they're like, like, what, what are we missing? You know, and you do the math six ways to Sunday and it's kind of the same thing for cold to a certain extent, but it's even more egregious, but it's, but it's more egregious because there is not really, you know, the runway is a lot shorter, right? I mean, like you look at Anglo American, for example, their coal reserves, their met coal reserves run out at the end of next decade. Um, cause that's when they, that they're, they're, they're kind of like, you know, in their words, nicely timed for when they think blast furnace, met, you know, met coal demand is kind of goes away or ebbs away into the sun, so to speak. Um, but between now and then, I mean, that's 20 years. I mean, that, that's and like I am by no means bearish. I, like I would and I've said this for a few months now that I would much rather own quality, right? Quality over beta. And, you know, for all the Peabody Peabody lovers, I mean, not going to see a dime of free cash, or you're not going to see a dime of capital returns ever, probably ever. Um, so, you know, I think people wanting to stick with quality assets low on the cost curve, especially in an, in, a, in an industry like coal, I mean, over a multi-year duration where a lot of people do not have that time frame right now, 
it's just it's really hard to lose. Like your margin of safety is extremely high. Um. So yeah, I don't know. I just ranted there like Billy Madison, but um, that was yeah. a great rant. All right. Thanks, Andrew. I would just argue argue with Arch that you're not really paying up for that quality. I mean, you know, yeah, you could probably get an extra ten percent free cash flow yield with a couple of the players that are higher on the cost curve, but it's like I mean, it's not like this is four times on the other no. one. No. No, and the other thing I was gonna say before earlier about thermal cold, and I was talking with somebody about this too, like, you know, what's the bear case for arch? Like tell tell me what would, you know, get you somewhat incrementally more negative and it's really hard to do honestly just because the you know you look at the cash cost a few years ago where they are today i mean even amr is probably the the largest standout on that particular front even though next year is going to be a pain in the ass for them on the cost front but i would actually if they sold the thermocol business i would take that as as a slight negative because i just don't see why you would sell that i mean if you believe that the inventory of tier one nat gas in the u.s is you know there's light at the end of the tunnel or maybe i should say there's darkness at the end of the tunnel um why would you sell an asset that's like the prb or that's complete lit that's directly linked to the price of nat gas like higher nat gas prices so if they were to sell that at some you know like oh look like we're going to sell it because we want to be a met company like it doesn't matter nobody's delineating between thermal and met coal it doesn't even matter um, so it's, it's just stupid. Like to even, I know they have to have that in the deck, but it's, it's stupid. Um, like nobody cares. Couldn't um, agree more. And, yeah, I, um, I completely agree. Yeah. Nobody ca- like nobody cares. And so if they were to sell that, that would actually be a negative because that's the money that's go to, that's going to go to fund, you know, the sinking fund, who knows what, what other costs might come up. I mean, I, you know, I will not put anything past the administration, you know, carbon cost or whatever I, I have no clue but i definitely want to be involved you know i'd much rather be involved in a company that has like a, uh something that spits out cash to to pay some unforeseen liability or cost really operating cost probably in this case that comes up in the semi near future and then you know um bet, <laughs> yeah bet bet the rest of the farm on the business that actually you know the met business in this case Here's a question for, for you guys. Um, what do you think if they, they spun out the PRB asset to, to its own entity? Because, frankly, I would own the shit out of that um, if I could. I don't know. I think I would still, you know, just buy uh, Thingella instead. And uh, you've got that seaborne optionality. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I kind of, I would kind of, I don't know. The PRB, it's, it's, it's base load power and it's linked to gas. Dungel is kind of more of a feast or famine play for like, it's somewhat higher in the cost curve. They don't get, you know, they realize API four at a 20% discount. Um, but no, I, I mean, look like Dungel is like an egregious case where, they already have a dividend policy in place. It's meaningful, 30% of operating free cash flow. And like shorting that thing, you really have to, like, you really have to be careful. That's why, you know, shorting Peabody was a much easier option because you have no carry risk as far as the dividend is concerned. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, I, I just have a quick question. Yeah, but I, I, I agree with what. Okay, go for it. And. and-
well, you guys have been speaking to it a little bit. So it's kind of the delineation between the metallic and the thermal. And it's just... Hey, hey Robert, um, I, like, I don't know if, if, if everyone like, else can hear you, you know, fine, but I can't, I can't hear you. Out of, of, of China. And we still haven't really seen in the Evergreen layout. Like, they just... Those thermal powers just way more in a like what play hey hey robert, robert i don't think i don't think um, anybody heard heard you you had a you had a misconnection robert and i don't hear my dog i don't know if it's on your end or what's going on but i just can't hear you and well, i think is Nelson, the same thing. yeah same I think it's your connection. Um, you're dropping in and out, Did so you're getting every third word. Okay. Yeah, we're still we're still dropping every other word for you, Robert. Robert, I, I, like, if you want to just DM me a question, I'm ha I'm happy to ask it and and have folks respond and respond myself. So while he's doing that, the one question I wanted to pose to the group is is kind of this game of chicken with, with not doing domestic contracting at the normal time. I'm just assuming that they sort out the contracts and, and still do, you know, 25% domestic contracting in 2022, and we'll hear about it in the first quarter call. Um, but does anybody feel differently? Uh, could they potentially, you know, be thinking, like, let's go 90-10? No, I mean, that the... Uh... The met, per, the met buyers in uh, in North America, you know, that's how they operate is on, just on annual contracts. So um, I don't I don't see that changing. Uh, the que the question I have is, uh, you know, they, they quoted a two hundred and thirty dollar uh, number, and I I want to know how much that is. I, I you know all the other uh, met producers had numbers in the one nineties, and uh, so I, I kind of think that two thirty is too high. We're going to we're going to find out perhaps um, the Q4 earnings that, you know, they had to layer in additional tons. And that 230 is actually 190, 195, sort of like uh, in line with the other producers. So that's, uh, yeah. that's a risk that a lot of people have probably have in their models right now. That 230 was that uh, was on 400,000 tons. So call it one sixth of of, you know, what if they were going to do 25 percent, that'd be two and a half billion tons. So, yeah, the 230. I mean, I don't, that 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 felt like off the charts, too good to be true. Yeah. No, I I, I agree with it. I mean, I'm modeling. <laughs> I'm pretty conservative. I'm modeling 170 for the domestic, because I I think like I'm scared that they they were late. I mean, they 
Uh, they could have done more probably, but they wanted to wait out to take the risk uh, of higher prices. And uh, I don't think, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they came below the others because they probably contracted later than everybody else. Yeah, that's a great. That's point. my view. Yeah, when they when they said it, because they said two thirty and uh, not very much volume, that implies that they did contract late. They probably pushed it, and mm-hmm. uh, if they pushed it too long, then um, yeah, the forward curve probably fell on them, and they could be below their peers. You're right. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I currently have one seventy. The only caveat is that that means that you actually price the 2.1 million tons at 158. So to get to 170 on a mixed basis, you would have to you would have to do the next 2.1 million at 158. I, as I said, my my model is pretty conservative, and I still cannot come up with uh, <laughs> like a reason this stock will not double. You know, in yeah. the next one two years. I mean, really. Hey, so Robert's question was basically why own, he, he's saying, look, with the China construction risks out there, why not just own pure play thermal rather rather than MET? Um, I guess, I, I mean, my quick stab at that is just that I just, I feel like I never, I never get these, uh, when there's the perception of terminal value being zero, even if terminal value is not zero, I just always have trouble with, with those stocks and and kind of gaming sentiment whereas like i just think you cannot argue that that you know there's no terminal value in met coal um within the next five years let's say now again i don't agree with the thermal thesis but i just have trouble trading those kind of stocks that are like oh they're dead in five years i just you know the 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 market sells every bounce on those kind of stocks and so that's that's um that's my answer you know i i I, I'm I'm really on the same page. Like I've looked at all the stocks in the sector, and I cannot come up with a better uh, pick than Arch. Like uh, as Andrew Andrew said, you know, I mean, uh, you have to go for the quality because, like I've 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 seen these stocks over the last twenty five years go up cycle, down cycle, go bankrupt, like everything, you know. And uh, Arch sitting at the lowest end, end of the cost curve uh, on the Met side uh, with uh, uh, like 20 reserves uh, with an industry uh, like that's not going to disappear. Uh, like, I think this is the safest place, you know. You'll probably, if you get into... Uh, let's say thermal or even to other beta uh, stocks like AMR etc you know uh, the risk like I wouldn't want to take that risk I want to be at the bottom of the cost curve with these free cash flow yields with an industry I know will be around for more than 10 years you know and you don't know what will happen to thermal yeah, just just to add on to that, I, I think that um, who's going to return capital soonest is another good question to ask, and and I think Arch is probably, you know, maybe the uh, the soonest to return capital just because of where their balance sheet's at today. 
Um, I think there's maybe one or two other companies I can think of that are, that are close. Um, but yeah, I just, I'd add that for context. Yeah. I mean, KNL, one thing that hasn't been mentioned yet is Arch actually has a $230 million authorization right now. It's kind of the leftover from their initial billion dollar authorization. I don't think they need to make any sort of public disclosure about using uh, that authorization. So uh, I, I don't think the buyback is as black and white as we've been pitching it here, because I do think that they could actually get started on the buyback without anything. But any, please correct me if anybody thinks I'm wrong on that topic. Like, I don't know if they ever formally shut down the program, and hence you would need some sort of 8K to, to bring it back on. Um, but it's my perception that they could basically use that 230 and not tell any of us. That's interesting. You know, I, I was I was thinking of it more from a, you know, if you wanted to do something without actually doing something, you could just reauthorize for for a billion, and and you know, people would would see that news release and 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 think, oh shit, I need to get in front of that. Yeah, I mean, I think they should honestly sooner rather than later, just because you know, if if they're doing the same, they're in their budgeting. Well, they should be done with their budgeting process already for next year. And hence, I don't see why they'd be seeing anything materially different than what we are seeing. And so it would be nice to have that just because, you know, who knows when it goes, it can go fast. Right. Um, and yeah, I'd much rather them buy back stock at, at, you know, with an eight handle or a nine handle than uh, chasing it at 110 or 120. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense that and, you know, it's there's not a lot of volume in the trades. So, you know, if you started to have a, an incremental buyer in the market, things would move quick, in my opinion. It, it sounds to me like the, uh, the time to own it is pretty soon. I mean, you have the, uh, the Chinese seasonality and the steel ramp up, and you have uh, Q1 and Q2 where they could announce a buyback. I mean, according to you guys, um, sounds like a buy, at least for the next six months. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I like it's a no-brainer for me. But if you like, if somebody is conservative still, like, why don't like people should sell puts uh, and make some premium? You know, if uh, I mean, sell a eight eighty buck, bucks uh, February puts at I don't know six seven bucks. And uh, if the stock comes to seven to three, you own it cheaper. If uh, if not, uh, you know you're seven dollars richer <laughs> per share. Take, take advantage of that sixty percent implied volatility. It, you yeah. might as well get to cause you all this pain in the sh- <laughs> in owning. The yeah, stock. <laughs> but but and and I was also looking at you know I was looking at selling some calls for December two thousand twenty two at five bucks or something. Uh, but I'm scared, you know, because uh, I think we may get there. <laughs> what level, uh, Arda? And uh, can we make a market? <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather deal with you than the market maker. <laughs> All right. Well, I think um, I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap it up. Um, it's been really appreciate, uh, Dyer. Thanks for coming on. Um, really appreciate your insight. Arda, it was, it was great to hear from you. I've read some of your posts in the past, but, uh, it's awesome to hear some of your background in this industry. And so 
Um, I appreciate you you hopping on and everybody else that jumped on to ask questions. This this was recorded, so it'll be available if anyone ever wants to. Uh, you know, if the stock goes the wrong way and you want to laugh at me, this will be uh, this will be out there, and uh, you can you can make me eat my words. <laughs> Hey, uh, j- just before we, we wrap it up, actually, Arda, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on, on console if, uh, if you've done some work on them. Yeah, uh, I am. I'm more on I'm looking at console more on the gas side. I'm to CNX resources rather than on the thermal coal side, uh, because to tell you the truth, like. I'm not that bullish long term on thermal coal, uh, so I would. I mean, if you're interested in CNX, <laughs> I could make some comments. But on CIX, I like I like I I wouldn't be an investor. You know. Yeah, I'll, Probably, I'll comment on it. I'll comment on it real quick. Uh, something's wrong with Consol's uh, stock price. I'm not sure why it's not moving up. I mean. They've got all the uh, fundamental backdrop, the tailwind for it to go up, and somebody's selling it. So, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't touch it until it starts moving up, though, because, you know, it looks broken right now to me. Hey, Dyer, would you say that's a function of uh, the warmer weather and gas prices getting pushed down, pressuring console? What do you think? Uh, You know, yeah, I mean, front months, gas prices have fallen, but... Uh, if you look across the the, uh, the term structure, everything still looks like uh, the structural price shift upwards has occurred, and it's not going to reverse anytime soon. That's my take on uh, on the term structure. So, I mean, maybe Consol is getting uh, some headwinds from front months uh, net gas prices falling, but then if you look at the Seaborne thermal market, everything looks great. Um, so, and, and same with the pet coke market. So, I think you know, Consol is going to put in some good some good quarters and uh, I'm not sure why everyone, no one's interested in it. I think for everybody on this call, you need to peer pressure KNL because I want his single stock basis on all to happen uh, before the East coast uh, cold snap comes. So, so just give him a healthy amount of peer pressure to get on here. <laughs> yeah, we can dedicate a space to it if, if you want. Um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, screw it. Let's do it next week before before the uh, the cold snap comes. So maybe early in the week. Tybee uh, is everything. You got to beat that cold snap. <laughs> maybe you guys will convince me to buy it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, you you really only need to believe in 2022 and 2023. And and from a 2022 standpoint, I think the only real exposure they have to changing prices is um, what is the PGM price of, of power and um, you know, what's API two going to do. And uh, I think seeing where Europe's at um, it's fair to get a bit bullish about API two. Yep. Yeah. And, and KNL's got a great thesis on PJM as well, which, which, which is why, which is why uh, console definitely requires a full, for sure, a full hour on single stock spaces. It's, it's uh You've, you've, you've done really good work there, and, and we should spend a, a, at least an hour on it. Even the, the PGM thesis is just a mouthful. But, yeah, let's spend a full hour on it uh, early next week, and, and we'll chat console. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Episode 7. <laughs> 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 Bye, everybody.
Bye, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, T-Webs, for hosting.